My guests are two very remarkable people who have a great deal to do with turning the country around, perhaps. If it is, does go toward enlightenment, they've played major roles. Mrs. Rosa Parks, the name perhaps familiar to some of you, she was the woman who sat in the bus that day. Out of it came, it was 1955, some 18 years ago, the Montgomery bus boycott. That indeed was a turning point in history. Her colleague is perhaps, to me, perhaps the most gallant educator in America, Miles Horton director founder of the Highlander Folk School, and we'll hear of that in a moment. Uh, both phenomena related. The Montgomery bus boycott, Mrs. Parks, Miles Horton, Highlander. There's a voice we're going to hear that, with which both of you are familiar. They're here, by the way. They have, they won honorary degrees from Columbia College, and they're here for the celebration and the honoring. Uh, the voice you're going to hear is that of E.D. Nixon, a voice familiar to my two guests. Mr. Nixon was the... Uh, head of the NAACP in Montgomery, and that means more <laughs> back in 55 than it may mean today here in the North. And he recalls that day, he refers to two people whom my guests both know, Clifford Virginia Durr, who are two very gallant, courageous people living in Montgomery. We hear Mr. Nixon's voice recalling that moment. Uh, you, uh, coming back, you're retired now. Oh, yeah. Uh, you're retired. But uh, I'm thinking about you, there's so many things. You, you helped organize the sleeping car porters, the NAACP here, and you helped, of course, you, you were head of the Montgomery Improvements originally. I, 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 and you I, chose I, Dr. I, King. That's right. You see, uh, Mrs. Roselle Parks, uh, who was arrested on the, mm -hmm. on the bus, uh, bus mm -hmm. was formerly my secretary for a long time. On the NAACP. That's right. Mm -hmm. And uh, when she was arrested, uh, Somebody called me and told me she was arrested, and I called down the police headquarters to find out what to charge. And it happened to have been one of these rude people on the, on the desk that evening, and somebody who didn't know me, but he knew I was a Negro when I called. And he just politely told me none of my damn business. Uh -huh. So one of used me arguing with him, so I picked up the telephone and called Mr. Dubs, and told Mr. Dubs, he knew Miss Carl Parks. Uh -huh. So I said, they arrested Miss Paul for something. I said, see if you can find out what uh, they got arrested for. I said, the man won't tell me down there. <coughs> so he, he called down there. He told him, I said, all right. I said, I'm going down there and make bond for you. He said, come by here and I'll go with you. So I drove by his house. He's living where we were, you know, the night he had talked to you for. Mm -hmm. And I, I drove by his house, picking him. Yeah, and as soon as I, he got out of the house, good Miss Doug come running. So they went down there. And of course, when he did the... We walked up the desk door and came in and made bond Miss Park. So when the man shared the bond out, he shared it to Mr. Durr. Mr. Durr said, no, Mr. Nixon's going to make a bond. So he's the problem owner. So I signed the bond and uh, went and got Miss Park. And uh called Miss Durr, you know, right there in the police. I asked the one north, did they mistreat her and everything? Right, right in the way, you know how Miss Durr is. <laughs> and, uh, Put her arm around and kissed her, and of course that made a whole lot of them people hot down and showing up. See, didn't they? <laughs> and uh, so we brought her home, and uh, after we got home, we had coffee, and I talked to her, and I said to Miss Parks, I said, Miss Parks, I said, your case can be the turning point. We've got to have your case to change the situation. And finally, after we talked for a long time, she says, of course, if you miss me, I'll go along with you. Talking about Mrs. Parks. Yes, ma'am, you're living very well. Lois brings it back 
to my mind quite vividly. Can you recall that? You and, of course, Miles Horton will join you in this conversation. The memory was 1955. You were... Yes, December 1st, December 1955, 1st. in the early evening, as I had uh, left my job to go home can you on re- the bus. Can you recount the uh, situation? You left your job to go home, and you were on the bus. Yes. And there were rules then about... There were rules regarding racial segregation. The white uh, passengers would occupy the front of the bus, the Negro in the back. There actually was no violation of the city ordinance in my arrest, but the fact that I refused to obey the bus drivers who had police power to rearrange seating or to have you stand to prevent the inconvenience of a white passenger. And when I refused to obey him when he asked that I stand up, I want to make it very clear, however, I was not sitting in the white section of the very front of the bus, but the first seat right back of where we were supposed to be mm-hmm. occupying. But many people did say that I had taken the front seat of the bus, which was uh, sort of a misunderstanding. And when the all of the front seats in the bus were occupied by white passengers, the driver wanted the four people, a man in the seat with me and two women across the aisle to stand in order for this white man to be accommodated with a seat. The other three people did stand up, and when I refused to stand up, the policeman were called, two came, placed me under arrest and had me taken to jail. And that's when, uh, that's what E. Nixon was talking about, then the call came. Yes, he was uh, notified by a friend of mine, and then he got in touch with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Durr, who, he was a lawyer there in Montgomery, and she, of course, was a friend of mine. I had known her for quite a while. And she was quite upset and excited over what had happened, and I had to start relating the story from then, and I'm still telling oh. it. Well, we, we, we'll just keep us going easily. We'll go back and forth. Miles, <coughs> when did you first... You, Miles Horton was the director of the Highlander Folk School that you, Mrs. Parks, attended. It was at Monteagle, Tennessee, and you were burned out by the... Your first... You were there for you. You were burned out by the Klansmen of the... Peri- uh, wasn't that it? No, uh, some buildings burned, but the uh, property was confiscated by the state during the, the civil rights period. And uh, we moved to Knoxville and, and had an outpost up in the mountains uh, <coughs> near the park, and that building was burned. Uh, other building was firebombed but didn't burn. Well, when did you first hear what was happening on that bus in Montgomery? <clears throat> well, uh, Ms. Parks had been in Highlander a few months before, and uh, we were, but I knew I knew Mr. Nixon very well. I'd worked with him uh, back when Highlander was working with the, the unions, and uh, so we we heard we heard the news, I guess, uh, and then uh, called uh, probably Mr. Nixon or the Durs, and found out about it. Uh, naturally, we were terribly concerned, uh, and 
for obvious reasons, you know. I'm thinking about several things, the connecting links here. The Highlander Folk School you attended, Virginia Clifford Durr, yourself, Miles Horton. The other three people got up, but you didn't. What, what impelled you to remain seated? For a long time, I had uh, been very much against, as far back as I can remember myself, I had been very much against being treated a certain way because of race and for a reason that over which I had no control. We'd always been taught that this was America, the land of the free and home of the brave, and we were free people, and I felt that it should be actual, in action rather than just something that we hear and talk about. And it's my um, reason is a little hard to explain to most people, but I just felt that I was being mistreated as a human being and I wanted to, in this way, make known that I felt that I should have the same rights and privileges as any other person. I'm thinking when you first met uh, Mrs. Parks, it was it was at Highlander, you know. Which perhaps you talk about Highlander. That plays a role here. This quite remarkable school that's gone through so much fire, fire in every sense of the word. Well, I remember I remember uh, Miss Parks very well at at, at Highlander. Uh, we were having a workshop on. I don't remember the topic, Rosa. What uh, it was the public school desegregation oh. and this place in Tennessee was the first school. Oak Ridge, Tennessee was the first yeah, school yeah. to be integrated, as we call it, desegregated then. Integrated by a mountaineer. That's right. And in order to know what it was going to be like and also to prepare ourselves mentally for this transition from complete racial segregation in the public schools to oh. this um, desegregation. Miles had this workshop and of course it was with uh, the information from Mrs. Virginia Durr that I was given the scholarship to go to Highland and it was my very first experience in my entire life going to a place where there were other people, people of another race and where we were all treated equally and without any tension or feeling of embarrassment or whatever goes with artificial boundaries of racial segregation. Mm. And I would like to say too that uh, uh, Miles Harden along with his staff and others there on the mountain did uh, give me my first insight on the fact that uh, there was such people who believe completely in freedom and equality for all. I suppose we can't think of Montgomery bus boycott without the gallantry heroism of the hard-working black people of Montgomery, and yet we also think of Miles Horton, too, this mountaineer. Miles, this vision of yours, how did it come to be? And the difficulties you had is historic and monumental. <laughs> when it began, the idea of it. Well, I, I suppose it began in my my youth. Uh, I grew up in that region and, and poor family, but a family that uh, believed in education and uh, like families of most poor people. 
uh, and uh, was a typically religious family with the conventional attitude towards uh, society, but some some real love and affection and real values uh, that I which I'm indebted to my parents, uh, and I was always wanted to do something of, of use. I couldn't conceive a more boring life than just going out and trying to make money or be successful. And uh, after working a number of ways, uh, I finally decided that the, the uh, opportunities to do the kind of education I wanted to do, opportunity wasn't available in any of the schools, and I knew practically all the schools in that area. Uh, and started trying to think of a way to deal with the problems of pe people. Uh, I was particularly interested in adults. Uh, I never accepted the idea that the younger generation is going to save society when the older generation makes it impossible for them to save it. So I thought we had to deal with adults as well as young people. And uh, what we really did was to, was to say we'd like to see a real revolution in this country. We thought the second revolution was overdue and we already may have real changes, fundamental changes of values, uh, anti-materialistic sort of, 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 of society. Uh, what we think of now as a non-technological type mm -hmm. of society. But we felt that uh, this had to be built on, out of the experiences of and on the, the creative energy and, and the power of people and you couldn't leave anybody out and you need to start the people who were the poorest or people like uh, blacks or uh, people of other, what we might call domestic third world people today. Uh, domestic third world people. Well, you know, we talk yeah. about third world. Mm -hmm. uh, we got third worlds here. We, at Holly, we deal with third world people all the time, but they're internal third world people. Mm -hmm. uh, Appalachians are, it kind of qualifies that. They're poor people, they exploited. Uh, I would say they qualify the least, but you know, the Chicanos, uh, uh, Spanish-speaking people, blacks, Indians. Uh, but we always saw the mountain people as part of that. Uh, that was an idea. We didn't, uh, you know, we didn't jump full uh, force into that because uh, it's white people. Nobody would pay attention to us but white people. It took us a long time to get black people to have enough confidence, confidence in us to, to, to come to Highlander and be willing to well, it took a courageous person. Um, but we always have tried to, to work with, we wanted to work with all kinds of people, but uh, uh, in terms of, of changing society, we've, we've never made any, any bones about our, 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 our purpose. But we don't think you can move towards change any faster than the people, you know, uh, who, are, who can furnish the powers for change are able to move. So we, we've tried to relate our programs practically to problems that that uh, people had to deal with. And at the time uh, uh, Rosa Parks came to Highlander, we were just beginning to, to get uh, 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 some understanding in the South of the possibilities, the hope of, of doing something. Highlander had hope all along, but we hadn't had many customers who joined <laughs> us in that hope. Uh, but people began to understand that. And uh, uh, when we were trying to get some people, a wide range of people from all over the South, uh, we had to rely on some of the people we knew. We'd worked previously with the CIO and, and uh, with labor organizations, and it was uh, people like Nixon uh, had been working. We better make it clear before. for those who are tuning later. We're talking about a man named E.D. Nixon. Oh, yes, yes. It's a different quality altogether. Yeah. Uh, 
would would help us recruit yeah. students. You see, so uh, it was uh, as as Ms. Parks has said. He he and 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 the Durs, uh, I guess, kind of arranged for her to come to Highlander, and. Uh, I, 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 the reason I remember it so well is, is uh, that Ms. Parks was probably the quietest uh, participant in the workshop. And uh, if, you, if you judge by, you know, uh, the conventional standards, she'd been the least promising probably. Mm -hmm. But I, we don't use conventional standards, yeah. so we had high hopes for her. Yeah. I think just as Miles Horton was talking, you, you were smiling and shaking your head about, about the difficulties there. You recall that? that time there too, don't you? Highlander itself being attacked and you taking a chance and going there too, I suppose. Yes, I'm sure it uh, was quite, uh, but I hadn't traveled very much at that time. And just getting on the bus and however I travel, I think it must have been by bus. Yeah. I find myself going further and further away from the type of surroundings I was used to and seeing less and le less number of black people. And finally, I didn't see any. And then I was met by this white person. Uh, and I said, well, I don't know where I'm going, but they seem to be nice enough. When I got to the workshop and met the group of people there, and especially Septa McClark, who is from Charleston, South Carolina. Point of the Mrs. Clark was the assistant to Miles. She yes. was the director of the workshop. She was, and I was somewhat withdrawn and didn't have very much to say, but finally I relaxed and enjoyed the stay very much throughout the entire aren't we workshop. Aren't we talking about something? We keep this open, by the way. I need not wait for questions. Aren't we talking about something very terribly important, Miles and Miles Horton, Rosa Parks, Mrs. Parks? That here, you first time you had been away from home, you were sort of quiet, withdrawn, uh, says Miles, you know. That I'm talking about the possibilities in all people, in so many people. Uh, yeah, see. And that Mrs. Parks is almost the dramatic. Yeah, we, we, Hollander, Hollander deals with potentials in people. We start with where they are, but we don't, we don't, well, you kind of see people with two eyes. One of them is where they are, and one is, is, is what they can become. And, and somehow it, it changes your perspective on people, and you see more in people than they even see in themselves. And you try to draw that out. You try to expand people, try to get them, give them self-confidence. And the only way you can do that is not by the things you say, but the way you live. It's, you know, what you do is, is the thing it says to people what it is you believe. But we never think of anybody... Uh, what Miss Park said is, is she did that she didn't think she'd do anything when she went back, even though some of the other people told what they were going to do. Uh, that didn't impress us as being any kind of, uh, of, uh, of uh, accurate assessment of what she would do. Now, we didn't know what she would do. We, didn't, we had hopes that, that this tired spirit of hers would get uh, uh, tired of being tired and she'd do something. And she did. Uh, uh, unpredictable sort of thing. Uh, uh, and on that was built, I think, the civil rights movement. Uh, but it was, uh, it took a person of her character and her beauty of life, somebody that everybody had confidence in in Montgomery, somebody that people respected, to, to provide the basis on which you could, you, you could build a movement. 
Uh, and I, I remember later on, uh, Rosa, remember you came back and I played you that tape of what you had said. Yes, I remember. <laughs> when you were there and uh, we got another tape of her talking about, uh, you know, uh, her, her, own, her own reaction to that. Uh, but I'm, all I'm trying to say is Holler deals and potentials. We have great faith in people's, uh, you know, potential to, to, to grow and develop and become courageous. And it's, uh, I think, been documented by, by our experience. Well, as Miles is talking, you were sitting, now we come back to you in the bus, this is sometime after Highlander. I suppose it's many things. You, you can't pinpoint what it is made you insist on sitting. At the time, of course, Highlander didn't come in my mind, but to go back to my firm belief, as far back as I can remember, of course, I want to give a great deal of credit to my mother, and especially my grandfather, my mother's father, for giving me the spirit of freedom and to instruct me in the idea that I should not feel because of my race or color inferior to any person, but I should do my very best to be a respectable person and to respect myself and expect respect from others and to learn what I possibly could for self-improvement. Coming on through my early um, adulthood with work with the NAACP and other organizations and trying to become a registered voter under hazardous uh, conditions such as being denied a number of times and feeling that there was a, a threat just to become a registered voter and cast my ballot to elect officers. In 1954, when the Supreme Court decision was handed down by the, through the, in, the efforts of the NAACP to do away with their public school racial segregation, I felt a, a spark of hope that now the United States Supreme Court and the federal government would give us some hope in doing this, but when we tried to work in Montgomery through the Board of Education, placing the petitions before the board that the parents had signed. It was just hopeless. It was n no more than just a farm. I actually had been very discouraged. First, I was somewhat encouraged by the decision but very discouraged because of the apathy and the host apathy on the part of our people, the black people, hostility and threats on the part of the white people. However, in March of 1955, just before I went to Highlander for the first time, there was a young girl, 15 years old, who was arrested on the bus or refusing to stand up for a white person to take the seat. She was handcuffed and bodily removed from the bus by three policemen. 
and when this news came to me, I felt that much of what we had done in committees, meetings, and other means, drawing up petitions and placing them in the hands of the officials without any results were just a brush off. I felt that a lot of time and effort had been wasted and that it was time to demonstrate and act in whatever way we could to make known that um, we would no longer accept the way we had been treated as a people. I didn't plan that I would be the person who would uh, be in the spotlight because of an initial uh, incident or action, but I worked very diligently with the youth council of the NAACP and other, the few young people that I could get to pay attention to what I was trying to get them to see about uh, desegregating the schools and other public facilities. I wanted uh, our leaders there to organize and be strong enough to back up or support any young person who would be a litigant if they should take some action in protest to segregation and uh, mistreatment. So that's where I find myself at the time I went to Highland. <coughs> Yeah, that's what it was all. Of course, it was inside you all the time. Always. Oh, no, see, nothing ever comes out of people no. that are in there, but the, the seeds of all this is in all people. Uh, Sometimes it, it takes, takes a little cultivating or a little exposure to the sunlight to, to grow, but it's, it's, it's there. And uh, Highlander, nobody puts that initial thing mm -hmm. in people. We might sometimes do, do, do something to encourage it, but uh, uh, it's because we feel it's there. I remember when I had the pleasure of introducing Mrs. Roosevelt and Rosa, and I introduced to Rosa, I said it's a pleasure to introduce the first lady of the land to the first lady of the South. That was very early. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember how delighted Mrs. Roosevelt was to meet to meet Rosa. In fact, she asked me to bring her so she, she could meet her. And Rosa was the, you know, the, the first the first lady of the South in, a, in, a, in, a, in every sense at that time. We'll take a slight, as we're talking now, to Mrs. Rosa Parks and Miles Horton, two of the remarkable people of our country, I believe, two of the most gallant, certainly, who played a role, a key role in quite possibly turning this country around, though it's been turned around several times in other directions, too. And we'll return in a moment. They're both being honored, by the way, during this conversation today, but by the Columbia College with honorary degrees. Uh, the other Nixon, Richard, is getting an degree from a Florida college. He's getting <laughs> one from a Columbia college. And we'll return in a moment. And perhaps the whole idea of what happened after your arrest that Edie Nixon was talking about and the beginning of the Montgomery Improvement Association. Resuming the conversation with Mrs. Rosa Parks and Miles Horton. And so there we come back to that moment, and there you were. And what happened? Uh, three, a couple of policemen came. You refused to get up from the seat, and a couple of policemen came. Yes, they came and placed me under arrest because I refused to stand up on the orders of the bus driver. I remember one asked me if the driver had told me to stand up, and I said yes. 
Then he wanted to know why I refused. And I told him that I didn't think I should have to stand up after I had boarded the bus and took a seat. So I asked him the question, why do you always continue to push us around? And the policeman said to me, I don't know, but the law is a law and you are under arrest. So I got right off the bus without any resistance and was placed in the police car and they waited until they could get word from the bus driver whether or not he wanted to swear to water just have me removed from the bus but the driver did insist on a warrant being sworn out against me and I was taken to jail after being questioned when I shortly after I was placed in the cell of course I was called down again to have my picture taken mug shot and fingerprints made I went back into the cell for a little while and I was called out again and so when I came down the stairs from the cell I looked up and saw Virginia Duff looking through the bars at me with tears in her eyes <laughs> of course when I the door opened she embraced me and was so disturbed about what had happened and then bond was made for me however up to this point we haven't mentioned my husband who was at home at the time and my mother. I was given permission to call one person. I had to fill out a card and but that was some little while after I'd been placed in jail and I called my house. My mother answered the telephone and I told her that I was in jail and so the first thing she asked me, did they beat me? Because it was a common practice not to just be arrested and placed into jail, but usually manhandled by the officers of the law. I said, no, I had been physically harmed, but I did want to get out. And my husband was right there, so I said, please tell Parks to come and get me out of this place. So he found some person that he knew and was on his way, but Mr. Nixon, of course, had gotten the news first because someone had told him what had happened. And they met up at the jail, and we all came back home, and then it was discussed what we would do following my arrest with regard to making a case against the racial segregation on the buses in Montgomery. And that's how the association began. Yeah, I would, I would, I would like to to add something here about uh, Mr. N uh, Nixon, the, the good Nixon, uh, uh, who, who uh, had tried to stimulate the black community uh, to uh, action over the rest of the young lady that uh, Rosa told us about earlier, and had not been successful. Uh, and when, uh, when you were arrested, Rosa, Nixon told me that he said, now I know I have something that will stir this community because here is a, 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 a person that the community will rally around. And uh, uh, he stayed up all night uh, calling people and, and stir, stirring up the community because he realized that, uh, that here was a chance of a lifetime. And uh, I mention that because it, I think that was an important factor in not just having a, 
uh, getting somebody out of jail and and uh, protesting and forgetting it. He turned that into a into a, to a, a movement instead of uh, of just. He was interested in Ms. Parks as yeah. a person, but he did more than that. And I think he's due a lot of credit for laying the groundwork for what later became the Montgomery Improvement Association, and then later the. I, th I think we should point out that Mrs. Parks worked for Mr. Nixon. You worked as secretary for NAACP. Today, NAACP yes. sounds like an easy kind of phrase, fashionable word, safe. But in well, Montgomery, we had then. in Montgomery back in '55, or some Mr. Nixon's home was bombed. I know, and uh, he'd get calls. I know, and you were there. Yes, I was in Montgomery during the time when several bombings took place, including his place, Dr. Martin Luther King, Reverend Abernathy, and several churches were bombed. E.G. Nixon helped organize the Pullman car porters, sleeping car porters, and then the NAACP. And now came the choice of Dr. King. This is interesting, isn't it? Uh, how to choose the head of Montgomery Proof Association. And Nixon was the choice, but he said, I didn't have enough schooling, is the way he put it. Yes, and also the fact that he would have to be out of Montgomery on his job a great deal at the time. So he declined as taking the chairmanship or the presidents of the new uh, Montgomery Improvement Association. Nixon, uh, uh, Nixon had been active, as I've indicated, in a lot of things. He was uh, uh, Randolph's uh, representative in the South when the plans were made to uh, for the uh, black people, and it was an all-black effort, to to uh, uh, march on Washington, and uh, and that it was that plan which brought into being the uh, FEPC, as you recall. But Nixon had been thinking this way for for a, a, a long time. And uh, my experience is that uh, most of the things that happen grow out of something before. Uh, too often uh, uh, people don't allow things to grow out of it, they put the lid on. But where, I don't know if anything has happened where there weren't roots in the, in, mm -hmm. in the past. I think it's important to stress the role of a person like, uh, like Nixon since he didn't, uh, here. He wasn't in the limelight. He, he, he never was a, in the front, and, and um, he wanted somebody like King to be the, the spokesman in front. That was a matter of choice on his part. He had no am personal ambitions. Mm. We come down to the events themselves. Now the boycott began. The association was formed to boycott the buses. Now we come to, a, a, I imagine, a tremendous moment. Here are me many were middle-aged women going to work as domestics, not taking the bus. Can you, can you remember that situation, Mrs. Parks? Well, on Monday morning, the date, uh, December 5th, the date of uh, my trial, people got up as usual and looked out and saw the buses were empty. Now what had actually happened between Thursday evening the date of my arrest, and of course, Mr. Nixon, along with maybe a few others, getting the word around. And of course, he initially did a great deal of uh, calling a number of people, all the ministers he could think of. And Friday morning, I went back to work as usual, and the Jet Magazine, 
someone from the Jet Magazine interviewed me. I was called by the local white paper, the Montgomery Advertiser, to talk with some reporter, but I, they never did reach me because I didn't call them back. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And on Friday evening, the very first citizens meeting was held at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, of which Dr. Martin Luther King was the pastor, and I was invited to attend this meeting. I suppose maybe about 50 people were there from the, over the city, some professionals, teachers, ministers, and just ordinary working people. And I was asked to make a statement of exactly what happened and how I remembered the incident. And on Saturday, the, I was holding a youth council, NAACP youth council workshop. I had invited Mrs. Roby, Lucinda Roby from Birmingham, who was the state director of youth at that time, to come down to conduct the workshop and be the principal speaker. And when we went over to where the workshop was to be held at the State College Center, to my surprise, we had no young people there. I think about maybe about four or five young people were at the workshop, and I felt very disappointed because after my efforts, they didn't um, show up. But what happened, the youth were passing leaflets on every corner about my arrest and asking through this leaflet that people not ride the bus on Monday morning. And along with the fact that uh, one of the leaflets got in the hands of one of the people in the city whose uh, maid had said that she wouldn't be to work and showed her this leaflet and she, of course, took the, the woman, the white woman, took it to the, I don't know who, was some official there mm-hmm. in Montgomery, and they published it in the daily paper. And so when this came out in the paper, it only added emphasis to the fact and spread the word around that people, we would just wouldn't be riding the bus, so the bus remained empty on that Monday morning. Isn't this interesting? And that's more about the uh, Miles, the misinterpretation by those in power. They thought publishing the paper would frighten black people by publishing it and had the opposite. No knowledge at all of what the black people were thinking all these years, really. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's a beautiful example yeah. of how black people have, have had to use the communications media, white people's media, for their own uh, advantage. Now, they, they had a, a grapevine going before that. I don't know... Uh, in, in in rural areas, among poor people, I would say, black people, uh, uh, any um, group of that kind that doesn't have you know, control of the media, the, the, the grapevine is this word of mouth. So there was already information spread throughout the community about the meaning of the significance of that, but the word hadn't spread to everybody. So this all this did was to supplement the the real word you see and and just announce to everybody that this was on uh, and uh, it, t- it had exactly the opposite meaning from what the what the what the, what the press uh, assumed assumed it would have because the groundwork had, had been laid you see and they don't understand how this is done therefore they misinterpret uh, you know, and uh, another example of this misunderstanding was that the whole civil rights movement was built on 
black people's ability to anticipate the action of white people. It would always be anything a blacks ask for, they'll say no to. So the demands kept escalating. The first demand was, was, was fixed seating on the bus. And of course they knew they would turn that down. Then they, they asked for botching of seating and for black drivers. But you could always know that the black requests would be turned down. If at any time the whites had had sense enough to give in, it would probably kill the movement, but, but you can always be sure they won't. And now the word spread. The first evening, uh, Monday evening after the, the day-long protest, this was spontaneous. In fact, I remember asking one of the young girls why she didn't come to the workshops. She said I had to be passing out those um, <laughs> leaflets. Mm. And another realization came to me that we accomplish very little, almost nothing, with just meetings and rhetoric and discussions that action is necessary. So they were wise enough to see that it was more important to stand on the street corners and pass these papers out to everyone who passed than to sit in a meeting and listen to someone speak. Mm. So I think we had to learn a great deal from the youth and the very first day I heard that there would be people not riding the bus that came from the local um, college and the schools where the young people said that they themselves would not be riding the bus. But there were older people too now. And older people, of course, mm -hmm. were right there as determined as the youth. I can't, in, in fact, it was a merging of people from all walks of life, age, youth, those who were poverty-stricken and all levels of uh, people. There, there were people who refused to ride those buses who were convinced that that action would uh, get them fired from their jobs. Uh, they, they did it despite the fact that they believed they'd go hungry as a result, that they, but they were willing to, 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 to make that, that sacrifice. That's the kind of spirit he was that made that such a successful bus boycott. I understand Mrs. Terry, Peggy Terry, whom I know you might know, Peggy Terry, uh, Peggy She's Terry a friend of mine. Is a poor white the South who's gone to Highlander. She remembers that converted her. Peggy had been a racist, and she remembers elderly women walking, refusing the bus, and being put on the bus, forced on the bus, by policemen standing there for a block and then walking off again. That was part of it too. Wasn't, isn't that when phrases came into being too, Mrs. Parks? My feet are tired, but my how that go again? Yes, that uh, was quite a slogan at the time, especially in the mask meetings, of course. On two evenings a week, under the um, guidance of the leaders, there would be mass meetings at various churches over the city in which the people kept the spirits up with the religious um, singing, praying, and listened to speeches from Dr. King, Abernathy, and well, there was so much eloquence around Montgomery yeah. that How's that phrase go? My feet are tired, but my spirit? My spirit is rested. <laughs> is rested. I never thought it was as much her feet as it was her, her 
that something inside it Rosa that uh, said, I, I, I've it had it up to here and I can't take any more. Give me credit for having sore feet, but actually I don't recall my feet hurting at all. I never believe But they that. just like to use that statement. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking since then. And then it, that's the boycott lasted for how long? 381 days. In fact, more than a year. We began December 5th, 1955, and I think it was December 21st or somewhere in past the middle of December 1956 when we actually started back to riding the buses. That's when segregation was broken on the buses. The yes, company gave in. The city gave in. Oh, yes. They had been put out of business for a mm. time. This is interesting. This read, in a way, was the first big example, wasn't it, of what a boycott could do? Because I suppose most people who rode the buses were black people because they didn't have, not too many had cars. Almost, uh, I would say not less than 75%, between 75% and 85 or 90% of the patronage were black people. So Miles' thoughts now, it's 18 years later since that moment. In the meantime, Mrs. Parks has done other work. She's now the secretary for Congressman Conyers of Michigan, Detroit. Uh, the Highlander is now in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Newmarket, Tennessee, out from Knoxville. Newmarket. Thoughts now, some 18 years later, on the part of both of you, as we think back now. It's 1973 now. Miles? Well, nobody could have anticipated uh, what, what took place, except in... in faith that people somehow would would react, finally react, and that all you could do in the meantime was try to bolster people's spirits and uh, help them get rid of their fears and give them some experiences that would uh, probably suggest that society itself could change. If you could see it in a minute here, like at Highlander, where we could control the situation, if we could demonstrate by the way we lived and what we believed and the way we treated people. Uh, that there was a possibility of, in this situation, blacks and whites working things out. We hope that idea would would have uh, some small influence. Uh, but that's about all you could do uh, till the time came, and nothing would have happened then if uh, if uh, hadn't been for what Rosa did and what Nixon did to take uh, take advantage of it, which. Uh, uh, started something that Dr. King came along and, 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 and picked up on it in, in, in a very imaginative sort of way. I remember going down to Montgomery maybe the first month or two after the uh, boycott started talking to, to Martin. I'd known him as a college student. I knew his father very well in Atlanta. Uh, he went to Highlander too, didn't no, he? No, yeah. Rosa can tell you that story. Oh, that. Uh, yeah. And Martin was saying uh, uh, that, uh, you know, this is a not what I was trained for in theological seminary, you know, and I, you know, I, I, what am I going to do about all these things? And uh, he said, what do you do when you're under this kind of pressure and dealing with people? I probably had a little bit more experience of that kind, and uh, not in that kind of situation, but with people when going got rough, and um, you had to build on the solidarity of people. And I said, well, the only, the only suggestion I have to make is that you have to you grow your strength from the people. You're not going to get it from any kind of 
of ideology or ideology or ideology that that's fine to have and we all need them and I'm all for that but but uh, practically speaking you got to 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 listen to the people and and learn to to respond to their feelings and needs and be intuitive and and uh, he seemed to feel that uh, that that was happening uh, he he was saying well that's that's kind of what's happening you know mm-hmm. And uh, he demonstrated that he had that kind of uh, that kind of sensitivity and ability, which I think was without which he he would have never uh, been the uh, the force he force he came to be. He was a uh, really growing uh, person, and uh, he, he learned to be sensitive to the joy, strength, yeah. and people, as well as his his religious uh, yeah. or. Philosophy. What were you thinking of Mrs. Parks's tell, tell, uh, tell, Yeah, well, this question was asked. I, you know, I wanted uh, uh, Rose to tell that uh, when we had the the ending of the Mont- the Selma Montgomery march and and uh, march with big billboards. That was half 65. Size, that was 10 years later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, half the size of this uh, wall here all along the road with a picture of uh, Martin Luther King at Highlander. And along with uh, so the rest of us, Rosa was in that picture, and uh, the people were saying that uh, Martin Luther King had been a student at Howler, and it was a communist training school, and it was being used by the opposition mm-hmm. to try to cripple the civil rights movement. It was a like some of the other things they did; it was inspiration to people instead of a, a negative thing. But that was the background of of uh, the charges that were being made there, and and Rosa got up, and made a speech, and she explained it. Tell me what you said, Rosa. It's hard for me to remember the exact word. You mean on Mon- when, when they were saying Martin had been in Holland, you told me you'd what has been there. Oh and yes, and I he was had on been there speaker. several times, and he only uh, accepted an invitation to be the guest speaker when they had the twenty-fifth uh, anniversary of Highlander, and he spent just maybe long enough to make a speech and be on his way. But because of his prominence, they did say that he had been. Uh, in training yeah. to become a communist or yeah. as a communist in at the Highlander Folk School. Rosa said, I was the one at Highlander. <laughs> you know, I'm the student. I'm I was the one, not yes. Martin. Yeah. <laughs> he was just our speaker. Yeah, well, just <laughs> as you're talking, I'm thinking that the reverse always works, doesn't it? Now we have Watergate, too, don't we? I mean, interesting how the com- you can have Watergate. The complete, <laughs> the complete misunderstanding of what is happening down below is mm. what really amounts to, doesn't it? I'm talking here as an hour ago so quickly, and all we're just doing <coughs> is touching and having the audience meet two very gallant and remarkable people. When you Much get with the history, oh, Miles Horton and Rosa Parks. You so when, you, Miles. when you get <coughs> Water, Watergate and the Civil Rights Movement are illustrations of the difference between when you have people from the top running things when you have people at the bottom running things. Basically, this is the nature of Highlander, of course, the school now in uh, outside Knoxville. Mrs. Parks and Miles Horton, I know there's much more to be said. It was 1965 when Dr. King introduced you at the end of the Selma Montgomery March, and we were seated in the home of the Durs that day, That's Miles right. and I, and Edie Nixon, and that was 10 years after Montgomery, and now it's eight years after Montgomery, Selma, and so it's still a long old road, but there's Rosa Parks, <coughs> who represents, and that 15-year-old girl, and the young and the old, and so the path is still there, isn't it? Yeah, we tried to get 
uh, Rosa to our, 20, our 40th anniversary at, when we opened the new school at Newmarket because she, we thought she would, more than any person we knew, symbolize what Hollander stood for. Unfortunately, her husband was sick at that time, and we had to have an a, uh, Appalachian black uh, stand-in for Mrs. Parks. Any, any thought at this moment, Mrs. Parks, before we say goodbye for the moment? I would like to express the significance of the fact that in 1955, this uh, protest movement against um, racial segregation began in Montgomery, Alabama, the cradle of the Confederacy. And it spread across the country in many forms, in many ways, including the student sit-ins, all kinds of protests. And the coming back to Montgomery for the Selma to Montgomery march was a just rounding off of that era in um, in the movement. The people witnessed many significant changes and unbelievable changes in the hearts and minds of black people. And I learned much myself. I learned that no matter how much you try and how hard you work to give people an incentive, it's something that you cannot yourself give another person. It's, it has to be within the person to make uh, the step and to have the belief and faith that they should be free people. And the complacency and the fear and the oppression that people had suffered so long after the emancipation of chattel slavery and the replacement of uh, the metal slavery of people who believed, actually believed that they were inferior to others because of the position that they had to hold and the oppression they had to endure. When that was thrown off, and they began to stand up and be vocal, be heard, and make known the dissatisfaction against being treated as uh, inferior beings. It is my belief now, especially with the young people, as well as some few old ones who have left in spite of all the assassination, that we will never go back to that uh, time again in our lives and even with much of what has happened that to our dismay and to our unhappiness and our feeling that we wish things could have been another way it is much better to make changes than to remain or go back to the old way of life and I'm continue to be hopeful that uh, there will be a way for us to eventually know freedom with all its meaning and what it should be here in this country. 